0: Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Cordy Lawrence, Director of Global Derivatives at Wellington Management, spends his days searching for value and optionality. With a framework geared towards assessing option prices on both an absolute and relative basis, Gordy and his team support portfolio managers throughout the organization with the aim of utilizing derivatives to improve the up versus down capture profiles and returns. My conversation with Gordy explores this process, how proxy hedges are evaluated based on historical performance through stress periods, and how circumstances unique to a specific time might be given special consideration. In this context, Gordy details his firm's purchase of puts on the Euro-Swiss Cross in late 2014 At a remarkably low level of implied volatility, based not simply on option carry considerations, but also on fundamental work and a view on the wherewithal of the Swiss National Bank. Sharing perspective on the current low level of U.S. interest rate volatility and its divergence from the VIX, Gordy notes that with respect to rates, the Fed, quote, has its thumb on the scale. Continuing to explore this, our discussion moves to equity volatility. In significant contrast to a few years earlier, When VIX ETP product growth was rampant and vol markets were well supplied, today's equity volatility environment is impacted by the combination of a supply shortage along with strong demand for options from retail. There may be another factor at work contributing to a high VIX, and that, in Gordy's view, is skepticism that market liquidity will be there when it is needed most. All of this will make for a fascinating year in markets in 2021. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Alpha Exchange. My conversation with Gordy Lawrence. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Gordy Lawrence. He is the Director of Global Derivatives at Wellington Management. Gordy, thanks for being a guest on the Alpha Exchange today.
1: My pleasure, Dean. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so we should have an excellent conversation about all things related to risk and derivatives. Always like to get started from the beginning and learn a little bit about people's early days in finance. You kind of came about your start in the industry from a not traditional place. We get a lot of physics majors and engineering majors that wind up on the street, but you went the way of psychology, which might come in handy these days, just given the way in which markets behave. But Tell us about just how you got started in the industry based on that psychology major.
1: Thanks. Yeah. No, it wasn't exactly the most direct route as far as getting to Wall Street. I went to a liberal arts college in Massachusetts and Started out pre-med and ended up in psychology, as you reference. And what I found as I approached graduation is a psychology degree is really not all that marketable. I interviewed in banking, consulting, advertising, even teaching. And the only thing that really seemed like a good path with that degree was going back to school. And that was not something I wanted to do. And then, so actually, fortunately for me, my dad knew somebody that got me an interview at a restaurant chain to get in their management training program to manage a restaurant. It was the well-known Lone Star Steakhouse. And that was my first job out of college. I started there, went to my training in Newcastle, Delaware, lasted a day and realized this is not for me. My first stop loss trade of my career (laughs) and left and moved. I was supposed to be managing a restaurant outside of DC. So I moved to DC anyway and started temping. And then just one day out of the blue, a good friend of mine from college who was working in the investment banking analyst program at Lehman, called me and said, hey, I know you're still looking for something more permanent. We're looking to hire a few more analysts. Are you interested in coming up and interviewing? And somehow they gave me a shot. And this was really an important break as far as I I really didn't have a whole lot else that was exciting going on at that point. And it really came down to me just sort of saying, okay, I'm going to work hard and you can count on me to put in the hours. And that's really what it took. So The job was in debt capital markets, which itself, like a lot of jobs in banking and those analyst programs, is really all about bookmaking. We sort of called ourselves publishers. You're making a lot of books on a regular basis for the bankers to go out and pitch ideas. In this case, this was to go out and pitch debt financing. And that part of the job wasn't that great, but the fantastic part of it was it was on the fixed income trading floor at Lehman. And I just loved the environment. It was really fast-paced, collegial. Very team oriented, and it just reminded me a lot of sports, which is the environment I knew best that I had just come out of from college. And so when that wrapped up, I didn't really want to go back to business school like most people in the analyst class did. And so I got into something in a rotational program called FIRST, the Fixed Income Rotational Sales and Trading. And what you do is you rotate around, and if a desk likes you, they draft you. And in my case, I was fortunate enough to end up in fixed income derivatives. So that was sort of how I started out in derivatives.
0: That's where we met. I was a young intern myself coming out of uh, MBA or in the midst of my MBA. And you and I met, you were on the swaps desk there. And tell us a little bit about getting started in interest rate swaps. Back then, uh, interest rates were a thing. (laughs) There were interest rates. (laughs) Can't say that so much these days. But tell us a little bit about the early part of your career in terms of the derivatives desk at Lehman.
1: So I obviously went into that with more knowledge about making pitch books than I did about sort of the technicals of interest rate swaps and derivatives in general. I did always sort of feel like I had a pretty good intuitive grasp of how options and swaps traded and how they were priced. But I didn't, like I said, I didn't have a strong technical grounding. And that's where the environment of the trading floor really came into play. I mean, Say what you want about how things ended up at Lehman, but Lehman in the early 90s was to me, a great place to work. The floor itself was loaded with young, smart people who wanted to work together. There was just sort of this underdog culture that the fixed income folks really embraced, this idea that we were this undercapitalized investment bank and people said we couldn't keep up with the bigger banks. Sort of most people took as a challenge and we all sort of worked together as a team. And so I had some great mentors during that period of time. And again, working on that floor, you just, you brushed shoulders with a lot of future greats. I mean, on the derivative side, we had Andy Morton and Kalsha Amin who were just fantastic as far as knowledge sharing. And you walk a few steps down and you run into Rick Reeder, who was a junior corporate bond trader at that point, who's obviously gone on to bigger things at BlackRock. And my one other claim to fame is that an intern trainee for me, along with you, who I got to work with as a summer intern, I got to work with Eric Felder, who was my trainee for about two weeks until he explained everything. That I didn't know about derivatives. And of course, he went on to quite a bit in terms of, I guess, Magnetar, Citadel, and now he's at Molus. And so, like I said, it was just this great culture where you could learn a lot very quickly. And it was young. The business itself was quite young, and we were all learning at the same time.
0: So, you were at Lehman for a period of time, and you ultimately wound up going to business school, correct?
1: That's right. Yeah. After about five years, I did leave and go to University of Chicago, as you did, where this was a good opportunity to sort of turn the intuitive into the more technical. And I really enjoyed that time, and I felt like I got a lot out of it. There's a lot you can do at Chicago in terms of they've got a very flexible curriculum. I was able to focus a lot of my time on getting technical skills, taking the classes from Fama, Saylor, people like Angel Surratt, a lot of focus on the theoretical finance. And I felt like I was able to sort of backfill a lot of what I never got from undergrad. That ended up sort of, when I came out of there and ended up moving over to the buy side, I felt like I was in a position where I had a lot more confidence in my game. I knew the basics, I knew the market technicals, but I didn't necessarily know the theory.
0: Tell us about the transition out of business school into the buy side. What was that like? What was the motivation for you to decide to switch from sell side to buy side.
1: The motivation was a lot about, so when I was working in fixed income derivatives at Lehman, I was working in a sales role calling on corporates and I enjoyed building relationships and I enjoyed coming up with ideas. What sort of felt a little bit lacking at the end of the day was that it was really your job to just make the sale and then move on. And so it wasn't one of these situations where any of this intellectual analysis that you had put in, you'd ever see it really come through you tended to just move on and try and move on to the next trade. And so I had a bit more interest in pursuing that, trying to figure out if some of the work that you put in can end up translating into real p rather than just sales. And so that was sort of what motivated the change. And then when I got to the buy side, I think the first shocking thing was the change of pace. I'd worked on the trading floor at Lehman for five years, which is boisterous, plenty loud, lots of activity, pretty much at all times. And then so when I got my first job out of business school was at Putnam Investments here in Boston. And I was in a cube, which I had never worked in my entire working career. And it just felt very, very lonely. And so it was a little bit of an adjustment. And But one of the things I saw immediately when I moved to the buy side was this ability to truly be intellectually honest about the decisions that you're making. There wasn't a trade that needed to happen. There was a trade that needed to happen if you thought it was a good idea, if you came to the conclusion that it was The right thing to do it wasn't just trading for the sake of trading and transactional that was one of the things that struck me right out of the gates when i got to the buy side
0: let's pivot to talking about your time at wellington so you've had a great run here at an incredibly successful company wellington is in some ways unique in terms of the way it uses derivatives so as the director of global derivatives i'm sure you're looking at a ton of different relationships and interacting with lots of different folks around the organization in that context. Tell us a little bit more about just how your day-to-day is structured at Wellington.
1: Our team works both with our internal managers and then we also manage portfolios for clients. So with our internal folks, we tend to view ourselves quite a bit as like a team member, a resource primarily within our alternatives teams, which are a lot of long short equity exposure, but also some fixed income and global macro. And like I said, the role we play there is we want to be part of the team. And so there's a little bit of a sales approach to it there. You're looking to build relationships and trust. And then there's even an opportunity to apply some of that psychology background that I've mocked so much is just the idea of you sit on the virtual couch and tell me your problems and we'll try and come up with solutions. And so our goal in these interactions is at the end, if we're doing the right things, we're improving the upside downside capture profile of these portfolios. Our view being that If you can outperform on the downside and maintain a healthy upside capture, your long run success is going to be really pretty good. As things fall, we tend to have more of a focus on protection, but there tends to be an opportunity to play some offense too. And if we're doing our job well, this is a proactive, us pushing interesting things that we see in the market to the PMs, as well as reactive when they're calling out and asking for help in solving a specific problem. And then the second part of the job, managing derivatives overlay products or portfolios of our own, we have a couple of hedging oriented or defensive strategies that we manage. And then we're also involved in the volatility risk premium space. And so we're on both sides of the vol trade in those, which we think gives us a pretty unique perspective on markets. If we don't want to sell it anymore, it's likely a good time to think about buying it and vice versa. But also in general, just having this kind of diversity of strategies that we can put our ideas into gives us a lot of outlets for our observations.
0: One of the things I always think about when I think about a large organization that's got its hands in so many different markets and is around the world is just the amount of product and idea generation that comes your way. And so it would be great to learn a little bit more about the process you use to filter observations, and find value. And if there are specific instances where perhaps there was a contrarian type of view that you and your team were able to find, perhaps sourcing convexity that turned out to be very cheap, it'd be great to learn more about just that overall process of filtering ideas and finding value.
1: We start with a very top-down process where we have a cross-asset screen which is meant to give us some indication of where we think there are dislocations and trying to give us a better feel for what the right price of risk should be. And there are things that pop out of there sometimes that are going to make us ask questions. This is really where sort of the platform of Wellington starts to pay off quite a bit because as an organization, we're very collaborative. This gives you the opportunity that when this information comes in, you can go and ask the experts. You can go out and seek a local opinion effectively on what you're seeing in the market and try and confirm whether it's useful information or whether it's noise, whether it's picking up on something that everyone should know, or whether it's something completely different. So a good example of this, I'm going to go back a little bit in time, but I love the example, is going back to actually like the summer of 2014 into the fall, when if you'll recall, the euro was going through a pretty rough time and it depreciated about 10%. And right around that time, actually, we started seeing Euro-Swiss volatility start to pick up a little bit. And actually, we started to see ideas come in from the sell side, pointing out that there's an uptick going on in volatility here. This is a pegged currency pair. This is an opportunity to harvest a risk premium. And so this is just another good example of the sort of firehose of information that comes in from the sell side, and you're just trying to make sense of it. So we noted that that is a fairly meaningful uptick in implied volatility for a pegged currency. And we started asking a few more questions about it. As it turned out, I still remember it clearly. It was a Friday morning in September, and we were sitting in the financials team meeting and talking about the impact on the European banks of the significant depreciation in the euro. And we have a really sharp bank analyst who has covered the Swiss banks for a really long time. And she just pointed out from her experience, from knowing the Swiss bankers, from knowing the SNB, the Swiss National Bank, that the exposure to inflation that comes with the type of depreciation in currency that you get when you're pegged to something that's sinking like the euro is not something that the Swiss would take lightly. And so from her point of view, this sort of hinted at the idea that this might be a time where they reconsider the peg or at least reset it. And so now all of a sudden you're looking at that change in volatility on EuroSwiss with a different perspective, but the market's not trying to tell you that this is a great volatility selling opportunity. It's trying to tell you that something is changing in the relationship and maybe there's an opportunity to get on board. And so as it turned out, we looked at that as a great opportunity to still buy vol. We bought longer dated vol. I think we bought one year optionality on puts on the EuroSwiss as a way to play the view that she had expressed. And within three or four months, I think it was in January of 2015, is ultimately when the f and sort of capitulated and broke the peg. And that ended up being a really nice trade in the portfolio. I just thought this was a good example from us as far as how we can work together and be better from not just looking at the numbers, but also getting sort of a fundamental perspective and a broader set of information because of the experience around the firm.
0: When we think about hedging, oftentimes, the starting point would appear to be the S&P 500. It's the global benchmark for risk. It is the deepest, in a lot of ways, derivatives market, maybe on the equity side for sure. But maybe that's kind of the point, is it tends to clear the market at a reasonable premium to realize. And so folks set about hunting for proxy hedges. I'd be curious if you could just lay out for us what that process looks like. You alluded to potentially trying to find opportunities where there might be some structural, maybe not dislocation, but something that gets cheap for a structural reason. Perhaps it's things like dividends. What's that process look like if you're starting with something like the S&P 500 and trying to find substitutes? What are some of the factors that come about in that decision-making process?
1: Well, our approach, so particularly within the option framework, and if you're trying to come up with hedges and sort of examine relative value, what we're doing when we're looking across assets like that is trying to get a feel for sort of typical behavior during periods of stress. And then what you're trying to do is come up with effectively what we'd consider to be a stress beta for a variety of different assets. And then so once you have an assessment, of what you expect that beta to be, it's a fairly simple exercise to then sort of see what premium you're paying per unit of stress beta for downside protection. In other words, you're just sort of taking a look and saying, all right, well, how much am I paying for that convexity, for that payoff? And now, again, there is a trade-off. You have to evaluate this question of basis risk. I mean, there's definitely going to be some portfolios for which the S&P 500 Is the best fit, but that's not necessarily what comes out of your process. What might come out of your process on a given day is that the Aussie Yen cross is a really good looking relative value option hedge for protecting downside protection. Then it becomes a question of when has it failed? How much does it fail by? And when it works, how much better is it? So you can sort of help frame the issue of. How much risk you're actually taking on by using this basis. And it also goes into sort of the overall construction, where what you want to do is you want to make sure that you're not too wedded and too reliant on a single relationship. You make it sort of a core satellite construction of the hedge, where the core of your hedge is going to tend to be more reliable, things that are going to be closer to home. Okay, it might not be the S&P 500, but it might be industrials, for instance, if that's what comes out of the process. And then around the edges is where you're going to have positions, again, maybe like an Aussie yen, where you feel as though when that works, you're going to get a real kick, a much better bang for your buck in those positions. And so what you want to do is sort of balance the reliability with the potential leverage of the structure.
0: So as you mentioned, Aussie yen, it just got me thinking about backtests and utilizing them, but perhaps not over-relying on them. When I think about FX, I think about the rate derivative market. And in the current context, it'd be good to hear your insights and thoughts on this. If we look at things like interest rate volatility, and historically, there's at least some connection to things like equity volatility in the VIX. It's certainly not perfect by any stretch, but vols across asset classes tend to move together but you have this interesting situation now tell me what you think where the fed has effectively decided to operate so specifically in a couple of different markets maybe fx is a offshoot of the rates market but just given what they're doing on the rate side looking at when you think about some of the backtest results how much thought process gets incorporated in terms of well that's the backtest but maybe this time is a little bit different how does that kind of aspect of the analysis fit into the decision-making.
1: That's a very important piece of it right now if you're talking about effectively a manipulated market like interest rates, where you do have to take into account the fact that the Fed really has their thumb on the scale. It's really going to impact the ability for things to run away in one direction. So you might be looking at rate vol and consistently saying, well, yeah, this looks way too low given where we are from a level standpoint. It seems like buying one-year by 10-year payers is a layup as an inflation hedge. Just again, keeping in mind that the underlying that you're trading there is something that an exogenous factor may be controlling. So we do, again, that's a good example of wanting to sort of take down your reliance a little bit. That's a market, for instance, where on paper, like that payer swaption idea with rates higher is probably a really interesting way To hedge a rotation from growth to value. Normally, when that type of rotation plays out, it's going to be an environment when inflation is rising, you've got the reflation trade working, cyclicals are going to be outperforming. And that's definitely a knee-jerk answer to it. But we sort of came to realize for managers that are concerned about that risk, you can't just rely on that type of hedge. And so you have to dig a little bit deeper because you do have to sort of recognize. The environment that we're in, and the fact that, like I said, the scales are sort of being thumbed. There's some control there. Now, at the same time, that's a good example of a narrative that exists in the market. That's why the vol is there. That's why it's priced where it is, where it looks like sort of this outlier relative to other things. And so it does actually add a little bit of additional option value to playing for the upside there, because if that were to play out, I think that would represent a pretty radical shift. In the belief system. I think if you ask most people, they don't expect the Fed via QE to let interest rates run away. And so if you do get a break there, the potential for serious upside is quite significant. And so our approach there has been more focused on playing for the sort of the more wingy type scenario. Don't dedicate a ton of premium to it, but if it breaks, it's going to break big. And so you'd want to have more leverage to that.
0: I just find it really fascinating and certainly respect the notion that you're never going to win betting against the Fed. (laughs) It just doesn't seem to work. But when I look at five year notes and just simple put options on five year notes, you've got effectively the rate pinned to the floor and the vol pinned to the floor as well. And it just, to me, it seems like five years is enough out of the sort of central anchoring of Fed policy. Where you still have some time, even if they kept forward guidance in place for a while, you still got some time there. And just it's inviting you to take a shot at it. (laughs) I was going to ask you just about the, again, back to the street and just managing all of the product creation that someone like yourself would be pitched. And you and I have talked many, many times about some of the light exotic space and dual underlying space and so forth. Is there value in that sort of area where? There's types of contingencies that you can do on an OTC basis. Are those the types of trades that at different points in time just feel really relevant and cheap in terms of a source of optionality for your portfolio?
1: I think they do, but I think you have to recognize their limitations. So yes, there are definitely opportunities to get yourself a very cheap profile if you have a differentiated view on correlation, for instance. If you're willing to bring two things in, I mean, like examples are people who trade stocks 50 puts that are contingent on the level of the Euro, or these days, again, a big trade going back to our interest rate scenario is F&P puts that are contingent on yields going higher. If you have a differentiated view there, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity to really decrease the amount of premium that you have in a trade and add to the leverage if you're right. But you do have to recognize, A, that you're betting on two things. So your chances of getting both right, you have to be careful about overconfidence for sure. And the other piece of it is just sort of the liquidity and the transparency that you're gonna have on value. Those trades are great when they work closer to the end of their life than at the beginning, because it's undoubtedly the case that if you go to unwind one of these positions, you're gonna face a pretty wide bid offer spread on that correlation assumption, for instance. And even if, again, we feel like we can model it Pretty well. We tend to agree with valuations on the way in based on where they claim they're marking correlation and our own expectations for correlation, but then it's on the way out that you have to be a little bit more aware of just sort of the realities of the product. And so, again, it's a little bit of expectations management that you want to be clear that you're betting on two things. So let's not be overconfident and just understand that this is probably better viewed as a held to expiry. Type structure if you can do it. One other thing to add there, Dean, actually, which I think is kind of important is another place where you can really harness that from the correlation assumption standpoint is that there are parts of the market where dealers are naturally going to be inclined to be a good bid or a good offer in correlation because of other exposures that they take on through structured products. So for instance, in, in general, dealers are a pretty good bid for index to index correlation on the equity side because of the exposures that they take on through some of these worst output structures that they trade in retail structured products. And so if you have a differentiated view on index A versus index B, then it can be quite helpful to have that tailwind at your back because that's, again, that's a risk that dealers are going to want to lay off.
0: Well, I'd love to get more of your take. We'll talk about the Year of 2020, is just a fascinating year in terms of the explosion, specifically in equity realized vol and a VIX making a new all time high. But just a few years earlier, we made in a lot of ways new all time lows in volatility. It's just really incredible to think about 2017 mapped against 2020. And so that was 2017 was a six and a half realized vol. The VIX averaged 11. I think the high in the VIX was 16. That was, uh, left tail event of low vol. Juxtapose for us the way in which the Wellington team is using derivatives in something like 2017 versus the mayhem of 2020. I can imagine those are different enough (laughs) years in terms of vol outcomes that you're using derivatives in a different way. I'd love to get some perspective on that if you can share.
1: So 2017 was a very interesting time. Well, this year, of course, was a very interesting time in volatility risk premium, as well. But 2017 was, I'd say, a period of discomfort for us in those strategies because we were getting increasingly nervous about essentially the pricing, the amount of spread that you were taking out from doing things, selling variants, selling put options, playing for VIX curve roll down, that it was feeling very thin And it was also feeling very crowded. And so like in environments like that, I think that was one of the real lessons learned through that period is you really have to watch how crowded the positioning is getting in a variety of spaces within that short vol space in particular. And what was ultimately the undoing of short vol during that period was the crowding that played out within some of the exchange traded products like XIV and SVXY where, and you could see it, you can see the shares outstanding, and you can see how much short vol exposure was building. And it was as we were watching that build that we were getting increasingly nervous. And so from a performance standpoint, fourth quarter, really second half of 2017, we lagged on the volatility risk premium side, because we just didn't want to underwrite that risk at the prices where it was trading. And again, with the bulge of short vol that was building. And as I said, when we finally got into 2018, what you saw play out was just sort of this dynamic of the positions became quite large on the short side, such that an unwind event became a greater and greater risk. The problem with a short vol ETP product is that if you get too large an uptick in vol in a single day, those things have to unwind. They start getting margin calls, and eventually they have to protect against the scenario where volatility goes up more than 100%, and then they're looking at losing more than their capital. And so as those strategies became more successful, they sort of built their own machine of doom in that they became very big, relative... To the amount of liquidity that was available in the markets. And as vol levels pushed lower, once you started having VIX futures trading in the 10 to 11 range, it didn't take that much of a move higher in vols for them to trigger margin calls and then forced unwinds. And it's the, the forced unwind itself, which caused the crazy February of 2018 move in vols. So going back to where we were in 2017, that was where we really started becoming very focused on the positioning and who else is in the pool with you. I think that that story is just as true now, it's just you're at the other side of the position as we enter 2021 and you look at what played out in 2020 is that you had all of that risk capital, or not all of it, but a significant amount of risk capital that was dedicated to being short vol, got wiped out in the first quarter or certainly took some significant losses and had outflows, and they're not really being replaced. And then at the same time, we kind of view the demand picture to be pretty skewed towards wanting to buy vol at this point. You've definitely got a lot more skittishness towards the market, but then you also have sort of this Tina effect that we've been talking about internally from bond investors, which is there is no alternative to the equity market. You can't sit there and be comfortable or as comfortable holding bond exposures or corporate exposures when they have negative real yields. And so some of that capital is migrating over into the equities. And it's just our expectation is that this is going to naturally create more demand for optionality because this is coming from what were previously less risky allocations. And now as they move into more risky allocations, they're going to want to do it with some sort of breaks, some sort of downside protection built in. And so that's sort of some of the thesis of what we think is going to play out in 2021. We have a pretty big imbalance that's built. As I said, supply got wiped. Demand is rising because money moving into the equity markets is still going to want some type of protection. Other traditional diversifiers like duration can't really be counted on, and so they're likely going to trigger a demand for additional protection. And then finally, the topic that became really hot over the summer was retail. Like They've definitely got this bug for buying optionality. Tends to be short-dated optionality.
0: Just so long as the expiration's not more than a few hours.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. But you chain them together. (laughs) You're right. Each individual position is held for a short period of time. But you change them all together and you've got an overall pickup in the demand for optionality in the market. And that's creating this bigger imbalance that we see. So that's the really good case for being a provider of liquidity on the vol risk premium side. Because I think that the clearing level, because of this change in the supply demand dynamic that's played out, the clearing level is going to be naturally higher and is going to be offering a bigger risk premium for those willing to harvest it or to try and harvest it. There's a downside to it as well, which is just sort of talking through what the liquidity profile looks like in the market, because that's where you can get stung right now in the short vol space is just this concept. A lot of ink has been spilled on the concept of sort of the changing nature of the provision of risk capital. And liquidity in the market. We've definitely shifted quite a bit of it taking place after the global financial crisis during regulatory change, that the marginal provider of liquidity is now an algorithm, not a human. It's operating with less capital. These algos are smart, (laughs) and they're fast. They're smart enough to know that when volatility increases, that their risk-adjusted returns start going down, and they know that they don't have a whole lot of capital behind them, so they withdraw liquidity which, again, smart on their part, not so good for the market. And then the other unfortunate part of the relationship is that there's been just sort of these rise in strategies that are naturally demanding liquidity when volatility is rising. So you take a look at a CTA strategy, a typical trend follower, they become sellers when markets turn down, when the trend turns. You look at vol-managed product or to some degree risk parity, the amount of leverage that they manage is dynamically and directly, or sorry, inversely related to the amount of volatility in the market. And so when volatility rises, they become natural sellers. And this can become kind of a vicious loop where you've got liquidity getting smaller and smaller as volatility rises and the demand for liquidity getting greater and greater as volatility rises. And so that's why I'm saying 2021 should be the great year for harvesting volatility risk premium, but you need to be careful to know what time it is, to know when the market is getting crowded, when the deck is kind of full from a positioning standpoint, because all it takes is a small dislocation, a small disturbance, and it can turn into something really quite big. And so from our point of view, Our approach to it is we're going to be in, but we're going to be very respectful of changes in trend and probably be faster from a risk management standpoint than we would when the liquidity dynamics were different.
0: Well, you do a great job of describing the XIV and the kind of period leading into it. And what you're hitting on there, And where I wanted to follow up with you is the trades in the marketplace as being a source of risk for the market. The XIV, its growth and the enthusiasm for it sowed the seeds of its own demise. It, as you said, it's self-destructed on this need to rehedge in a very, very short period of time. And that's really what shortfall can do. And as you note, we've got this very interesting period of 2020. You had this kind of wipeout of a lot of capital from March in the risk recycling business. And now you've got this retail demand. Are there other imbalances? In derivatives markets specifically, where the kind of underlying setup of convexity threatens to destabilize the market? Are there other types of scenarios that are like this right now where folks have to really be careful, where things could potentially get crowded and you could have a spiral from a risk premium standpoint?
1: I think what it often comes down to is that with central banks playing such a big role on sort of guiding markets that I think crowding in general becomes an issue because the number of ideas becomes fewer. And so you mentioned the vol behavior. Vol behavior looks a lot like if you look at hedge fund exposures and for a long period of time, leaning heavily long growth and momentum. It's a limited number of ideas, which they all sort of carry this same profile, which is as long as the party is going and everything's fine, the liquidity and the stability and the strategy looks great. But then when it breaks, you realize how narrow the doorway is. And so I guess my take on that is that the dynamic that we described in the vol market is true in lots of places, which is to some degree, the amount of return seeking capital has now greatly exceeded the amount of liquidity and so it's not going to be uncommon to have these type of storms that kick up and cause significant dislocations even when they're quiet if you look at what's played out basically since the Pfizer vaccine news came out i mean it's been this massive silent killer type experience for those sitting long growth and momentum you wouldn't necessarily see it from looking at the surface of the market But you're getting like these shocks, multi-year or multi-decade experiences in terms of factor volatility, because the door is just too small. And so I think almost anywhere you look, where people find a trade that's working, you're naturally going to have that hurting take place. And then when it's time to go, it gets pretty uncomfortable. And so what I described That's a lot of what we're looking for in the options world is we're looking for those kind of vulnerabilities. You're looking for something where sort of the prevailing view of the world changes all of a sudden, and that makes people reconsider how much exposure they have to something and they want to change. And it's probably happening at about the same time that everybody else up and down the street is doing it as well. And that's how you get these sort of massive shocks.
0: There may be no area where the prevailing view is... A foot in terms of change than in rates and in just the sort of notion of monetary policy, of the extent to which central banks will do greater and greater things in the markets and deficits. The repair process for fighting back against the pandemic is extremely costly, and a country like the United States that's got the exorbitant privilege to run it up is certainly going to do so. Is that an area where the kind of rethink of what the monetary system is or may be? There's been a lot of discussion on gold. That had a big run earlier this year. Of course, the Bitcoin story is out there and certainly a big momentum trade as well. What are those types of the big picture rethinks? Are they ultimately centered around- interest rates and where monetary policy is going. I know a lot of the growth versus value discrepancy tends to correlate to interest rates as well. What are your thoughts on that?
1: That's a tough one. I think that's a big underlying question in the market for sure, is when people lose faith in the ability to just sort of keep printing and printing and printing and borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. And people make... (laughs) reference to the vigilantes but the vigilantes are no match for the bazooka <laughs> that the central banks are yielding at this point charles bronson and death wish didn't have anything on them
0: it is a very difficult one to answer
1: <laughs> it's key it's on people's minds for sure and it's unclear when that tipping point is going to be trying to navigate out of these levels of debt and just the amount of deficit that needs to be financed is a real sticky question for how this
0: all ends. When you think about, I just want to go back to your, some of your tail hedging programs and activities and sort of how you think about populating that portfolio or underwriting the trades in the portfolio. There's the asset class selection. There's the kind of structure, so to speak, perhaps using some version of a contingency. There's strike and maturity selection, but then there's just basic kind of trade-offs between puts and put spreads. Things like that. How do you balance that just in terms of convexity versus trying to carry in the sideways? We know these markets can be, and feels like we're starting to be in one of those periods right now, they can get pretty sleepy for periods of time. So you want the punch of real optionality, but you also, it's difficult to carry during the quiet periods. What's the discussion like internally with? you, your teammates, your colleagues, just around trying to strike that right balance?
1: To some degree, you're right. Sitting in sort of an always-on approach, running flat out on the protection side is a very tough way to live. That's extremely expensive. Owning a lot of direct protection is going to bleed you dry and is going to undoubtedly, not undoubtedly, but very likely leave you in a position where you kind of capitulate on the approach right before you need it. And so our angle is a couple things. One, from a portfolio management standpoint, our first outside mandate that we managed was sort of a direct tail risk strategy, which we try to be really clear about the idea that if you're going to go in that route, it should not be viewed as an approach that's meant to have a positive expected return. It's meant to be a risk enabler. You have to look at it as a sort of a fee that you're paying for the sake of being able to carry a little bit more risk within the portfolio. That's often how we look at things internally as well if we're going to be heavier users of protection is you don't want to just evaluate it as a standalone, you want to try and evaluate what type of impact you're making on the overall portfolio construction so that you can put yourself in position to really benefit more and like I said, have this risk enabling quality. Now that's not for everybody as we've found externally, there isn't a tremendous amount of appetite for sort of your traditional buy puts, expect to lose 80 to 90% of your premium on an annual basis, sort of rinse and repeat. And so what we've done is we've tried to take on a little bit more of a relative value approach where we're using the outputs from our process to identify what looks cheap, what looks rich, and sort of spreading them a little bit more so that the amount of net premium, I mean, effectively, it is almost like constructing a put spread type structure some of that is being done more directly on the vol side as well. We're, we're trading parts of the volatility curve against other parts of the volatility curve where we see dislocations in the sort of supply-demand dynamic. So you think you can lean on the part of the curve that might be most richly priced to help finance additional long vol exposure at a part that you think is more fairly priced. So things like that with an RV. And then the last piece of it, from a portfolio construction standpoint is I mentioned it before, like knowing what time it is, understand when the market is starting to become more prone to fragility, trying to understand when there's an exposure out there, which is putting it at risk of having the type of drawdown like we did in March. For instance, you can track fairly easily how much exposure there is in products that are gonna be sensitive to the level of volatility. And when they get pretty fully loaded, it's when you have to be most aware that A, they can't buy a whole lot more (laughs) once realized volatility compresses as much as it does. And then B, if you get a little bit of a tip, some sort of disturbance, they can sort of create this negative feedback loop as well. So it's sort of a balance of all of those things as we put that together trying to time it a little bit better, trying to use a little bit more relative value. And for those who have the ability to kind of look at it on an integrated basis, which is, okay, this is premium, but it's an enabling quality and trying to get people to think about it that way and recognize that probably your best outcome is if the trades I do for you don't make you any money.
0: And let's just get your thoughts on monetization. So the hedge works and the 25 delta put became a 75 delta put, and the vol surface is much higher. The options got a lot of value now. I'm sure there's a lot of internal debate about that process, about the process of monetizing premium. Do you try to be somewhat rules-based? What does that look like in terms of when a hedge expands a lot in value? What's the conversation like internally about what to do next when the vol goes up a lot?
1: that's definitely one of the most challenging parts about running any type of defensive strategy is that you wait for a long time for the opportunity. And then oftentimes the chance to really cash in can be really fleeting. And so our view on this is you have to have a plan. This can't be something that you sort of decide at the moment based on how you feel the market is behaving. You have to have a plan. And then we try to build that into the portfolio construction as well. When we think about different types of trades that go into sort of your hedge book, we try to think of them each as having their own role. We've got some types of positions that we expect are going to be most impactful and really built to protect you for the first 5 to 10% of a drawdown. Others that really can pay off and do better for you once you get into that 10 to 20%. And then you've got positions that are going to kick in when you get beyond that. And the important part of this with having a plan is recognizing that when a strategy has done its job, take it out of the game. You don't know when the market's going to bottom. And one of my favorite quotes, whenever we're talking with a PM about whether we're supposed to monetize from the usual suspects, is Kevin Spacey says, have you ever tried to shoot the devil in the back? What if you miss? You don't want to take all of your hedges off at once and just call it the bottom. But at the same time, if you've constructed your portfolio correctly, you can have some comfort there. You've got an out. You've got, okay, well, I am taking some premium off the table, but if this continues, the type of trades that I have on are actually specifically built, we think, for the next leg. And so I'm not going to be empty handed or I'm not going to be under hedged if this continues. And I'm also not going to be empty handed if we snap back. So that's really how we think about it. You try and almost think about it like you're a manager of a baseball team where you've got your starting pitchers and then you've got your middle relievers and then you've got your closers. And so Don't leave your starter in too long. We joke around Boston, it's probably a little more accessible. But the idea of don't be Grady Little, who, manager of the Red Sox in 2003, refused to take Pedro Martinez out of the game and ended up blowing the American League Championship Series to the Yankees. Have that plan, stick to it, and build the portfolio so you've got some psychological comfort to the decisions that you're making.
0: It seems super important just given the speed with which these risk-on events can become risk-off and vice versa. Just the regime shifts are sudden. And that's kind of how I wanted to end, is just to try to get some of your takeaways as we round out this incredible year of 2020. There's just been so much that's happened, most of it not great, but we're at least close to turning the page. It's been a year of never say never in markets. And as someone that's just trading a lot of derivatives. I was curious if you could offer some of your insights on liquidity. We talked a little bit about it earlier in the conversation. You talked about the robotic provision of liquidity through algorithms. It's not a person you're speaking to. It's essentially interacting with machines. What has 2020 taught you guys about liquidity, its vulnerability? And as you think about 2021, I think you alluded to some of this, How does the liquidity environment impact how you're thinking about your utilization of derivatives?
1: If anything, what 2020 has done for us is it's really reinforced our views that the liquidity picture is broken and dangerous. And so I mentioned that our expectation is that vols probably because of this sort of supply-demand dynamic that's built out should probably stay elevated for a period of time. If that doesn't happen, Like, let's say the Fed engineers enough of a low vol environment where we're basically like just, we rise 25 basis points a day and eventually implied get marked down. Our general approach is that the way the market is constructed right now, I think you have to remain suspicious of vols getting low. There's just sort of a general vulnerability that exists out there that you may not know what event it is. That's going to sort of set the market in motion and sort of start things swaying back and forth. But once it's set in motion, it's pretty likely that it's going to turn into something more meaningful. And so, as we approach it, our expectation is that we don't get those shots. The market probably isn't going to give us another chance to buy S and P Vol at twelve to thirteen percent again for a little while. Maybe not for a long while. But when it does, our view is that even without being able to identify a specific catalyst that you probably need to take advantage of that because the payoffs when it works are going to be bigger than you might expect, just because of the way that the ecosystem has evolved. And like I said, 2020 did nothing to dissuade us of the view that there's really a mismatch between supply and demand for liquidity when it's needed most.
0: Well, Gordy, this has been an excellent conversation. Really appreciate your perspective and thoughts. Our guests will really value the discussion. And thanks very much for being a guest today.
1: My pleasure, Dean. Thanks for having me and take care.
0: You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback as we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk. Your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus please email us at feedback at alpha exchange podcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.